Dan Woods here from Early Adopter Research, and I'm at Strata, New York City. Uh, it's September 12th, 2018, and I'm here sitting here with Ellen Friedman, a principal technologist at MapR Technologies, and Ted Dunning, chief application architect at MapR Tech Data Technologies. Um, what we're going to talk today about is a couple of the books that uh, these two have written recently, and then we're going to also explore a topic that I think is not covered as well as it should be, and that is, when does it make sense to actually create your own AI application, and when should you wait and use products created by vendors in order to employ AI? I think in either case, you know, one of the key things that you need to do is get your data house in order. One of the things that I recommend when people ask me about how they can prepare for the world of AI is, you need to have a great data supply chain. You need to be in command of your data. You need to be able to move it around. You need to be able to find it and put it to use. And that really makes the big difference whether you're building your own solution or whether you're using a product. But these guys know a lot more about this than I do. So would you please introduce yourself so that everybody can hear which voice is which? Hi, I'm Ellen Friedman. And I'm Ted Dunning. And if you have trouble telling us part, there's a problem. <laughs> okay, I think, I think we'll, we'll all be able to know who's who. So uh, I think the, part of the point that I was making about the importance of the data supply chain with respect to AI uh, was made in the, the first book that I was encountered from you, although I know you've both written many books, um, and that is Machine Learning Logistics. What was the point of that book in terms of its recommendations for people trying to exploit AI in a business context? Well, the, the current hype for AI and machine learning has led people to kind of attribute miraculous qualities to it, that a little bit of AI sprinkled like fairy dust on a business will make it work better. And in fact, like all pixie dust, it requires a lot of elbow grease and, and logistics and real world doing it to actually get some value out of it. And that, the really tawdry, unexciting pieces of getting things in order, as you put it with the data, uh, organizing them, even just defining some opportunity in a business that could be made better with machine learning, is an enormous task. Actually bigger in some ways, in many ways, than the machine learning itself. And then begins the next bigger task, which is deploying a model accurately, reliably, because the, the life cycle is different than even software. And so because certainly academics find the machine learning itself more academically and intellectual challenging part of the task, and because there's been great advances there, people talk about that part. It is the sexy, exciting part of the job, but the unsexy, unexciting, a lot of work and a lot of creativity required, other parts, getting the data and deploying the models, is actually much, much bigger. Now, have you seen companies that have focused on this competency and then have been able to do more with their uh, AI applications uh, because they've actually prepared and built up a robust uh, data supply chain? I think absolutely. The companies who are very successful uh, with this, and we've looked at this in the current book as well, are ones who have addressed these practical needs, and not just addressed them, but addressed them in ways 
that make the whole thing make sense. It's feasible, it's not cumbersome, it happens in a timely manner, it doesn't take a mountain of, of administration and so forth to handle. And so it's not just can you do it, but can you do it in a, in a clean and, and, and simple and elegant way to support this. I think the other aspect of this, though, is the difference. It, we, one of the exciting things about machine learning or AI is that it's exploring new ground in many cases. Uh, it keeps changing even in a project that's already in production. It's always going to change. It's not just written, done, it's over with. It keeps adapting as, as the world's changing. And it's important to have systems that can do that. That also means that people are using a large number of different machine learning tools. And we're talking about now the tools that are actually used for building the models, the algorithms, and so forth. And they want to have a large number because there's no single tool that fits every situation perfectly, even with the very good choices. The good news here is that this kind of um, uh, unpleasant but necessary work that Ted's referring to, this, this logistics of handling model management, data management, as you said, Dan, getting your data in order, your house in order before you start this, doing that well, it, it is fairly consistent across different projects, different models, different machine learning tools. And so if you do that part well, you don't have to reinvent that for each different system. And so that's nice. It's like you solve it, basically you solve it once and you're set up for all the flexibility of, of going with these different machine learning and AI uh, projects. So in essence, uh, if you put a, a team with like five data engineers and two data scientists who are experts in AI modeling up against a team that had two data engineers and five data scientists, the first team would probably win. Well, my team would win because I would make them all do both tasks. I don't think it's uh, fair or right or even productive for data scientists to get to live in an ivory tower. I think they really have to live and feel the bits between their toes. They have to develop a strong sense of what the business is really about before they can do effective science. And I think that Calling this science in some sense is accurate in that we are testing things that we think about the world, but calling it science in another sense is a little bit highfalutin. Uh, it is about reasoning from evidence, and it, that's scientific, but it's also about developing this evidence and then changing the process so that the whole thing changes anyway. And that becomes less like science and more like engineering anyway. So one of the implications of what you said is that data engineering is not a second-class activity in a team that you would run. Absolutely oh, not. Absolutely not. I, I believe in integrating those teams very tightly, and I think that everything from software engineering to operations to data engineering to data science to data janitoring, uh, those all are integrated tasks, and they aren't even individual people. They're kind of separable tasks, but a data engineer is often a pretty darn good uh, software engineer. And a data scientist, especially now, very often either grew up as a data engineer and then molded into that, or is a modern data scientist who has a PhD or something, and they code well anyway because they can't work without that. So you wind up with a huge amount of crossover and you don't have bright primary colors here, you have mixtures of hues. They're not pure anything. Got it. So now, 
Let's move on to the second thing you mentioned, which was the point of your second book, which is AI and analytics in production. Now, the things I've seen about the way that AI actually works, some people have called for a new type of discipline uh, that has been called analytics ops. Uh, But the point of it all is that just like DevOps, where there's a continuum between the awareness of what you're doing as a developer and its impact on the operational state and the operational management's impact uh, you know, and, and the, the, the information it should be giving to developers, the idea of analytics ops is the same, is that when you put analytics in place, you need to monitor them, you need to understand where they came from, you need to understand how they're performing, you need to have a variety of tests for both statistical maturity, but in this world of AI, you know, AI maturity as well. When is it working well? When is it st- trending badly? When is it stopping working? And you have to understand why all that's happening and then go back and either fix the problems in the data, fix the problems in the algorithms, do retraining and things like that. But I think that that, that whole model is just like a, a, a sort of a very cartoonish version of what you were saying that the cycle of putting something, an application in production for an AI machine learning application is much different than even just for, for software. How would you describe you know, what, what's going on when you put an AI application in production? You know, what are all the, what's the checklist of responsibilities that you need to, to have to make sure that you're not going off track? I, I want to jump in with a, a quick answer and have Ted to give you a much deeper uh, answer to that. Um, because I, the, the quick answer piece is the things that you need to do to have that AI application ready when it goes into production are things that you needed to have done probably before you ever built the AI application. Some of the things that make this work well uh, in terms of production are things that need to be considered very early on. And one example of that is the, the data itself, in some cases, needs to be treated as if it's in production. You need to have versions of the data that are not going to be uh, overwritten or corrected uh, versions that you can go back to, and that's very important for different kinds of applications, but especially for AI. Let me interrupt. I don't think they heard the air quotes around corrected yes. or, or repaired. A lot yeah. of people repair your data for you yeah. with disastrous quality. But you know, yeah. taking the simple example, you're going to extract features, you're going to prepare data as input for a model. It's not that you don't make changes to it. But you want to be able to get back to a kind of pristine, unchanging version of data, both the raw data, because there may be features you want later, or the input data itself, so that you can go back to data and, and know that that's something you can rely on. And so some of that is forward thinking and forward planning in these systems so that you're set up. It's not that the application is built, the models test and evaluated and so forth in isolation and then you sort of throw it out there to IT and say, good luck, get this in production. Uh, these are things that, that take advanced planning and advanced knowledge and other things you do at the point that the So when you ready. say you need to do advanced planning, uh, what's an example of, of doing that properly and what happens and what's an example of what happens when you don't do it properly? Ted has more experience with the specific examples? Uh, yeah, sadly I have a lot of experience with doing it <laughs> improperly. Um, part of it can be, do you just think a little bit about how you're storing your data or do you let people just kind of do free text commentary that they log and those then are the things you try to mine? Or do you try to structure that just a little bit 
So at least it can be automatically parsed and there are certain aspects like a code or uh, a reason code or a short message or, or something else that could be actually analyzed logically as opposed to trying to do full NLP on machine logs. Um, if you don't plan just a little bit about that data, if you don't plan ahead enough to actually gather the data at all in a way that's going to stick around, then you'll find yourself in a situation where somebody says, okay, build a model. And you go, I'm sorry, we need six months of data to do that. And six months from now, we'll be able to start. If you'd planned a little bit ahead saying, I am at high risk for modeling, you'd say, I'm going to start recording data like there, 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 and there are places we might want to make automated decisions. I will start recording there, 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 and I hope I counted right there. Um, that's, that's an example of planning. I don't think that Ellen was referring to planning in a gross, grandiose oh, sense. No, not at all. No. It's a little bit more like, yeah, you know, that would have been nice if you'd done that right. level of planning. Now, what then is the checklist for how, like if you put a software application in production, you know, you have logs to look at to, mm -hmm. to see, you know, what's, what's happening with it. You have a variety of performance metrics of, uh, you know, the, the response times or, or other metrics yep. that indicate how the software is performing. And um, uh, you, you then, you know, you, and you have error reports and bugs and, and security alarms and things like that. I'm getting the impression that you have to have all of that, you know, in an AI application, but what are the new things that you don't have uh, that are unique to the AI? I think the things that are the same and the things that are different are pretty easy to come by, pretty easy to figure out if you just start from a bit of philosophy about what's different. Machine learning is just a different way of programming. It's a way of building computer programs that you don't know quite what they should do. And you, you're, you're telling them more like that, that's good, or like, I wish you could have told me that's about to happen. And you don't know precisely what it is that would have indicated that, otherwise you've just written a program. You know, if that's going to happen, say that's going to happen. That sort of level of complexity of programming, that's what you would have done. So if we take this as a form of programming where we don't quite know what the right answer is, then that's going to tell us what the differences are. Obviously, it still wants to respond in the right amount of time, so we should record that. All of those operational characteristics about is it actually answering in the right amount of time and, and to the right thing, all of those apply because those are just the functional aspects. It doesn't matter what it answers, those still need to be measured. But we cannot write a unit test for it, really. Unit tests depend on knowing what it's supposed to do and testing for that. We don't know. We can say, oh, here's some of the extra data. Does it kind of work on that? But that's presuming that that extra data is in self-correct. Data here is in production as much as in as code is, and so we have doubts about both. And this is an uncertain thing. Code should be presumed to be broken in its native state. You only perfect it through, through faith and good works, you might say. Uh, and so you... These differences mean that you wind up monitoring quite a lot more. 
So give us some, make this a little more concrete. What yeah. are the things that you monitor that you, in an AIML deployment that you wouldn't monitor or wouldn't even be relevant to a Well, one thing I would do is almost always I would keep an old version of a model live beyond just the next version, but through many versions of the model. I would want to keep that around. And the reason for that... And keep, you're saying keep running it and seeing what answers it, it's Keep watching you. its output, keep comparing its output to new models. The reason is, is if you have a model that's pretty good, it's probably still pretty good. It's also probably simpler than your current models because you've elaborated your thoughts over time. You should have produced something simple that's pretty good right off the bat. And because it's pretty simple, it's going to be more stable than a more complex model. And furthermore, you probably understand it really well by now. So if it does something strange, if the distribution of scores that come out of it change and the model is stable for the last year, you have a very strong evidence that the world itself has changed. And because it's the model output that's changed and the model is making sense of the world in, in some functionally useful way, you know that some significant aspect of the world with respect to your business process has changed. Well, if the world has changed just right off the bat, then prima facie you need to think about that more than whether or not this latest model is going to shave off tiny bits of error. It was like the whole world may have changed and so we may need to look at something rather radical. Now a second thing is a pretty good model is correct a lot of the time. If you disagree with it a lot of the time, you're probably not as good as it is because it's only wrong a small fraction of the time and if you disagree a lot, you've degraded. And so that alone lets it become a benchmark. Its virtue is not its accuracy. Its virtue is its understand your, your level of comprehension of it, your, its stability. So secondly, I would have a model that's actually doing work. Got it. That probably could have come first in some people's mind. Second, thirdly, I would have the on-deck model, the one that I presume is about to become the next champion. And I would have the previous champion, both live operating at the same time. We're up to four or five models now. And so this, this was sort of like the idea of a control group on steroids. Yes, yes, very much so. And it's also the idea of a rollback system and a roll forward system. I would very much prefer to bring up the new system, the next champion, the, the, the about to be crowned champion, and run it for a while have it stabilize, warm up, check on its stability and everything else with and ignore its output. Just look at its operational characteristics, look at how much it agrees with the champion, how much it disagrees with the, the canary model, things like that. Characterize how much change I'm making and bound how bad it could be. Got it. Now, I quit ignoring it. That's a very light action. Therefore, I can presume that what it was doing before when I was ignoring it is essentially identical to what it's doing after I stop ignoring it. And Unless you say by ignoring it, you mean put it in production? No, no, I mean it's in production. It's in production and I'm paying attention and only to the master copy. An analogy that can work, a very simplistic analogy, is that you have you know, the, the actors waiting in the wings. 
they're already ready, they know their lines, they're standing there, they're ready to have the spotlight put on them. They're already there. And so these models have already been evaluated and within a certain range they seem appropriate. They're running, you don't have to you know, start them up essentially. They're ready, it's just the spotlight's not on them. The, the decisions are coming from a different model. And in fact, they're yeah, already okay. saying their lines. Right, and when you, you say stop ignoring, ignoring them, you, right. stop, you ignore the one you had been looking at and you start paying attention right. to and them. Right, and by them. paying attention, you mean actually using the values that yeah. come up. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. What I mean. but it's been producing results. Yes. And we've been okay. checking on them, thinking that's looking pretty good. Now we start using the new system's results. Got it. Or we have some dire doubt about the current system and we start using the old system's results. We can roll forward, we can roll back, really s safely. And I prefer these operational decisions to be nearly no ops. Now, are, in your model, are you assuming that there's constant retraining? Or are you assuming that the decision that you might have to explicitly go back and retrain? Because it seems like that one of the options you know, would be to retrain these models at certain points. What are the triggers for that? So, Constant retraining is a little bit of an uh, ambiguous term. Constant retraining can mean incremental learning. So the model that is running live is learning as it's running from every example you give it. Most people find that a little bit scary because it's much harder to exactly recreate what the model is now. That may be required, but it isn't usually. The other way of constant retraining is that I've got something that I think is the cat's pajamas. It's doing great. But I'm going to be training a next model absolutely already because I know that that's not going to last for most normal applications. Because the world changes, or alternatively, because you've discovered better methods, better tools, or whatever, you, you've brought better something data. along, or better data. So you brought something along that's better. It may not be that the world suddenly change or, or disrupted. Um, so, and so you still may want it to change. What's a good like? What's what's a a period, an, an, like a, a a very short period a model would last. What's an average period a model would last, I'll and what's a long period? Short is hours. Ted, well, and I was going to say I was surprised by giving a partial answer, and then again back to him because I think one of the things that is critical, at, as you mentioned, Dan, a checklist because we're talking about not just building these systems, but having them in production, practical in production in the business. And that is, these uh, AI systems, like any machine learning systems, are providing insights and changing insights and so forth. Uh, but it's not just a matter of, can you evaluate, you should be monitoring them, can you evaluate how well they're doing? But the question is, do you have an action to take, an action that's actually tied to real business goals? Can you take an action based on whatever it's doing? It's not magic. So the model may be doing a grand job, and if you don't have a practical built-in action already ready to go that locks into your business in a meaningful way, you aren't getting the value of that machine learning or that AI system. So back to how long should a model last? Well those actions are very much going to depend on the business situation, the cycles of business, the microcycle. You know, faster isn't better just for its own sake, as Ted said. Faster just for its own sake is just bragging rights. The question is, does your business situation require fast? How fast? You know, what's the window of opportunity? And so I think that that also sets parameters around how long a model 
is going to last. How quickly well. does how the quickly, business actually change? How quickly does the business change? How quickly does the world relative to that data so change? So let's give some examples. Um, in talking to a major player in, in, in credit payments, they do a lot of online non-contact payments through non-traditional means. Their adversaries, and fraud is very often, it is almost entirely adversarial. You have a human trying to beat you. It's an ongoing chess game. Their adversaries, there's a relatively small number of them, and they use very large amounts of automation. And that means that they can change their tactics very quickly. They can change the parameters of it or the entire characteristics of it. And so there are times when their adversaries are very active, when models degrade significantly over a period of hours and have to be replaced multiple times per day. Cat and mouse, strike, counter-strike, thrust, parry. It's a continuous sword fight or a knife fight in the gutter sort of thing for them. For cases where, and again fraud, just taking almost exactly the same problem, but in a different business setting, there's other kinds of fraud which depend on entire ecosystems of people stealing data in a very innocuous form, enriching it, then applying it, building synthetic identities, and, and so on. And so you have to, if you're on the fraudster site, educate an entire community in new techniques. And often these people are not people who take well to training. Got it. Otherwise they would have a job. And um, so then you have months to years for the adaptation. Got it. I see. So this is, and this is the way the business context determines it. Um, and, and actually, let me give you one other example. Suppose you have some sort of machine learning that is driving cars. As long as that car has not substantially mechanically changed, that model should still work. Now, are there any other, before we move on to the, the last question I have for you, is there any other uh, items on that checklist that you'd like to, to, to mention about things that are different yeah. uh, that, that you need to do in an AI production Absolutely. application? There's, there's at least one more. Uh, so we talked about how you want to have lots of models in production ready to be paid attention to at any moment. You probably want to have a few more that are the ones that are the up-and-coming ones so that you can watch how they do in a very live setting. But you also probably have want to have one that we often call a decoy. It looks like a model, but it doesn't actually quack. So it accepts inputs like a model, but it doesn't produce outputs. It just archives them. And the virtue here is that it's accepting inputs that are precisely the inputs that a model would get. There is no extrapolation. Oh, we, we log the data over here, but that's different like this from the real input, where we're guessing this is what a model would have seen. This is what a model did see. And it has that sterling virtue of reality. Reality is a, a precious thing in computing. And, and so that's extraordinarily valuable. I see. I think a difference, a general difference, is not as exciting as what Ted said, but I do think it's important. Uh, a difference in doing this with AI versus other types of applications is that many of the things that do matter for a lot of different applications matter here, but it's almost like you've just put a magnifier on it. You just turned up the amplification. 
So taking the example of things like the ability to uh, isolate one process running in one environment or another environment because you're testing all these different models or you employ them in different environments because you want the production environment to match the testing environment and be reproducible. So containerization matters, that kind of independence microservices approach matters. Multi-tenancy. Multi-tenancy matters. And that matters for other things too. That's not unique to AI, but it's, it matters so much. Turns up to 11. Yeah, turn, turn the volume up on because it will like Because all of these characteristics will affect the performance much more, is that well, it? No, because it's instead of running one copy of the service, I'm talking about running 20. Extreme need for it, uh, data locality that you might need for compliance and other reasons, but that's often a very important thing. Say if you want to use GPUs, you want to put certain. No, and then and this goes. It just extreme. No, and 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 also this this highlights the sort of need for a data fabric where you can you can have a microservices supportable data fabric like MapR provides, so that you could run those twenty models but have one data source. Pumping all, pumping the, the and and some of them, them like the developmental models, you might not want to run in your production data center, right. which could be in or out of the cloud, and the developmental stuff could be in or out of the cloud. And if you have good data fabric, data can be anywhere it needs to be. You can okay. separate those systems, but I think it's really useful. I think people are more successful when they're doing the development and the production on the same system. It's not, they say, we're developing over here and we'll use these kind of iffy systems or whatever, they're not that reliable, but we're just development, it's not in production. Well, developing in a system that's very different than how you're gonna run it in production just creates its own problems. So developing a good system, production of a good system, it doesn't mean that they don't have to be independent of each other. So now I'd like to get to the question that I'm most interested in your answer to, and that is this. If I had to take a, you know, a, a, a strong position lightly held about the AI world, I would say that most people would be much better off if they invested in creating a data supply chain, mastering their world of data, getting their data house in order, and then using that mastery of the data to apply it to data, high quality AI data products that were provided to them by vendors, or at least you know, assets pretty proven assets and models that are coming from maybe a data science team that's vertically focused and not trying to invent their own AI. Now, on the other hand, people want to invent their own AI because that's a tremendous way of getting ahead, of providing a sustainable advantage, uh, and, 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 uh, and, and, and to do things that other people can't do, which is obviously uh, what many businesses want to do. So. What would you, where would you fall out on that? How, would, how does somebody to tell whether they're the first person or the second person? I want to give a, a, a tiny answer to it so that Ted has the last word on this. Uh, I think it's a really interesting question. And, and I agree with the, the, the basics of what you said, Dan, I really do. There are some excellent situations where there are models that are sort of pre-built. It's not an entirely just, you know, drag and drop system, but there are models where some of the basics of the models are already developed, and then you come in and customize the model. And that means you didn't have to do all of that from the ground up. Transfer learning. But yes, but to do that well, 
you need to know your system well. You need to have good data. You need, it's not magic. You still need to have those same principles of handling the data. Do you have the right questions? Can you take action? Do you have a system that can run this in production? And, and you'd better do that well and do it from scratch. And that's true whether you build these systems yourself or you use something like this for transfer learning. You also need to have a little bit of sophistication in looking at what you're getting and how it's going to work um, so that you know whether that sort of approach is appropriate for your particular business well, need. Yeah. And you might want to do both. So my worry is that people so I think those are good things, but my worry is that people hear that and they think it's like magic. They just throw anything at it and it's going to do its no, magic thing and they'll come I think out you're, the other side. I see exactly what you're, yeah. you're saying and I think it's important. I think that one of the kind of tenets that I did not uh, articulate when I said my initial recommendation was I think you do have to be a sophisticated consumer oh, of AI. You have to know, yes. you have to be able to understand what... AI is a good fit for what problem domains, and um, and that's not a trivial thing. But that's not as hard right. as Absolutely. building your own I system that works. I completely agree with that. Yeah. So I'd like to agree and disagree. Uh, <laughs> so getting the data right is absolutely a prerequisite. Getting measuring well, being able to cut once or twice or however many times you need to, is critical. Uh, if you are not a data-oriented business, and I don't mean something that is inherently data-full, but just if you are a business that works intuitionistly, and, and you could see it, people reason either from anecdote or reason from summaries or aggregates. Uh, and people who reason entirely by ac anecdote, who work by the seat of their pants, are often not happy in a data environment. They're, they have strong intuitions, and they can be very, very effective in certain businesses. But if they are not data-oriented, if they are not reasoning by aggregate sort of people, or finding the anecdotes within the data, they will probably fail with an AI orientation because they're not happy with the system having its own intuitions. That said, I'd like to give two examples, one of which is a great example of buying a product, data product, and the other is a great counterexample. Okay. And I think it's very, very hard to draw the line between them. They're very, very similar. One was, and, and I apologize also, these are from the deep, dark ages. So all the people who think AI was just invented, sorry, AI businesses weren't even just invented. One is from the early and mid-90s, amazingly enough. Neural networks and, and so on, intelligent systems. This was agency software. And they built, uh, through actually almost an accidental sequence of circumstances, they built a credit card fraud detection system using their neural net technology, their special GPU processor. And I was like, the history repeats itself mm -hmm. again and again. Uh, and they very, very quickly became successful because they pooled the data from multiple banks to build a better fraud detection model because they had a better fraud detection model, they could sell the next bank, and they had to contribute their data to the data consortium, which meant they had a better model, which they could get the next bank. So if anybody wanted to come in to compete, they couldn't build as good a model because they could only get one bank at a time's data. Therefore, they couldn't get the data. Therefore, they couldn't build the model. Therefore, a, buying a product was probably the best idea. 
Absolutely. And agency asserted, and it isn't entirely clear if this was quite true, but they asserted, and there's some evidence that they were correct, and certainly they were the experts of the time, that their model built on a consortium was significantly better than that built on any single banks. That was certainly true for all the small banks. The one great holdout was American Express. They have over a thousand data scientists and they build extraordinarily good fraud models. Their loss rates are some almost an order of magnitude below the industry averages. They're good at this, but they're big at this. And they have both the merchant and the issuer side of things. They give people credit cards, but then they go to the merchants to settle the charge as well. So they see more of the data. Well, there I think is one principle, and that is if you're going to take on the risk and do the investment of creating your own AI and ML models, there has to be a massive pile of money. Not necessarily. That, that you're, not, uh, that not you're, that you're trying to protect or, or obtain. No. Uh, that's my second example, actually. But I mean, in the example you just said, that was true. Oh, if you're going to have a thousand data scientists, you're yeah, going to have I mean, a massive pile of money. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I mean, but the, they but I mean the, 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 the model that they were using was created because it was worth so much. To and them. they are the largest issuer. Right. Yeah. They handle 24% by dollars of the uh, American credit card charges in a year. So that's kind of massive. Um, the second example is another interesting counterpoint, though. This was the company Music Match. And the interesting thing is I worked at HNC. Uh, I didn't do the, the credit card models. We worked on the internet side of things. But we started trying to sell Music Match this recommendation technology that we had at HNC. And it became quite clear that we couldn't actually sell them a product or even a service that was repeatable because recommendation information is very idiosyncratic. And <clears throat> eventually what we did is we said, let's just go to Music Match <clears throat> and build a new technology for this. And it was the right decision for Music Match to not buy recommenders. And that is because the information is not consistent enough from business to business. And you've seen it very, very little success of recommenders as products. I'm going to point out, though, Ted, in your example, it's not necessarily that you need that team of a thousand very expensive data scientists, but you'd better have really expert knowledge. And they did, because in fact, you built that recommender and you really did come from the background. You knew what you were doing. Uh, well, so, uh, well, another thing you know, you're saying it is, was hard to do. is that, easy. is there a product to build? Like a product means that there's commonality of requirements. Precisely. You know, and so in certain domains, there the commonality credit, requirements credit card is very low. Well, but credit card transactions, there's perfect ISO standard regulated mm -hmm. commonality. Right. Whereas in music or online purchases, everybody's process is a little bit different. So for instance, uh, Amazon gets a signal from how far down you scroll down the page. That's almost as valuable to them as what you buy. I mean, it's a weaker signal, but it's way higher volume. Right. So its total impact is huge. But if somebody else has a different page design, they can't use the same recommender. Got it. Well, and that's also, Amazon early on used net perceptions, uh, a recommendation technology. And then dumped them. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and there's, there's a long history of recommenders just didn't work to sell. 
Got it. it well, it seems like sort of like the object relational mapping problem, you know, where that never really became like a ETL sort of product. It was always a toolkit. Yeah. It was never yeah. something that could be simplified. Right. In, in, in a certain way. Well, so is there, are there any other, uh, that's, 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 that, those are some good guidelines. You know, the idea of, is there a product there? You know, what, what is the uh, amount of money that, that you ha are going after? Um, uh, you said that it and was possible to build your own model, though, on a small scale. There's a lot of easy problems. And so how do you know whether you have an easy problem or whether you're wasting your time? Did you finish it already in a day? <laughs> That's yeah. one, one measure. So if you think about this, the availability data, the availability technology, has not just given us a ladder to get up above the low-hanging fruit, which somebody has already picked. It has lowered the entire tree. And there's a vast number of cherries right at ground level. Good. So, so in other words, using something like data robot. No, uh, no, 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 no. Well, I mean, maybe that's good. Well, no, no, yeah. that, that lowers the tree tremendously. No, 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 no. That's not what I mean. I mean that there is actual learning technology, not just model selection technology or something like that. Any of the model building systems could do this. I mean that there's just dead easy problems. Like you... What's a good... What's the canonical dead easy problem? Uh... A friend of mine was trying to use data science on a problem of excluding denial of service attack. And he noticed that two fields in the headers were in different order. Now, this is the cheesiest form of learning where you just go, okay, we're going to, oh, wait a minute, there's the answer. Got it. Got it. And it's so cheesy, simple. Like, you know, you're embarrassed to talk to your AI friends about this one. Uh, or another attack, example. they put all the things in lowercase. Yeah. And, you know, it just stands out of the data, and you discover it just off the bat before you could almost even start the programs to, to do fancy learning. There's your answer. Right, right. There's a different kind of example, and I think it's very, very widespread. Uh, Dan, and that is, it goes back to this idea, um, you said it better than I did right at the beginning, but people having, you know, a certain sophistication of knowledge about where and how to do these, and that's different than building the model yourself, and it's different than whether that model is complex or simple. And so we know an example with one of our best data scientists at MAPR, I'm working with one of uh, our, many of our customers, and one example I was thinking about, but he went in and recognized within the business points, he talked to the customer and, and about their business, and he recognized places where there were bottlenecks of decisions being made, where either you could automate a decision the human was making, or you could augment the human decision. You could reduce the number of examples they had to look at to make it a feasible system, and this had to do with some of their, their billing and, and revenue. And it turned out uh, he's a person who's capable of building from scratch very complicated models, but he didn't need very complicated models. He needed very simple systems that somebody else... He was brave enough to and hold it back. Was, yeah, the expertise came in recognizing there's a point, if you build a model right there, it's going to make a massive difference, tens of millions of dollars for your business, and it did. So there are situations where just the ability to recognize where you want to use it, and that doesn't in itself define whether that, no, that model needs to be complicated or simple. Well, we have obviously covered a lot of fascinating stuff, and I am going to uh, 
think about all this, codify what you've said, and I think we need to have another talk about this hmm. because I don't think we've really uh, done more than gotten a, to the first chapter of this conversation. Well, if we aren't careful, we're going to have to send out for pizza, too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, uh, so Ellen, thank you so much. Thank you. Bruce. Ted, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time with me today. And this is uh, Dan Woods from Early Adopter Research signing off.